Hello and welcome to the podcast for the February 2008 issue of The Lancet Neurology. I'm Richard Lane and I'm joined by neurology editor Helen Frankish to discuss some highlights from this month's issue. Helen, let's talk about the research article, which sounds very interesting, though I think it's fairly early stage, and this is to try and assist with the early detection of Alzheimer's disease. That's right. One of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease is the deposition of amyloid plaques in the brain. And these amyloid plaques precede the development of dementia. And in theory, imaging of amyloid beta should allow patients who are at risk of developing dementia to be identified earlier. And ultimately, the hope is that these people could be targeted with strategies to either treat or prevent dementia. But as you say, it sounds simple enough, doesn't it? But what exists at the moment in terms of diagnosing Alzheimer's by scanning? Well, most work in this area has been done on a compound called Pittsburgh B, but the use of this tracer hasn't been adopted widely in clinical practice, mainly because it's labelled with carbon-11, which has a very short half-life of just 20 minutes. So its use is limited at the moment to sites that have an on-site cyclotron, as well as expertise in working with carbon-11. And there's a lot of work going on just now to find a tracer for imaging amyloids that has similar characteristics to Pittsburgh B but is labelled with fluorine 18 which is a much longer half-life of 110 minutes. So tell us a bit about the current study. So in this study, Chris Rowe and colleagues from the University of Melbourne report the first studies in humans of a fluorine 18 labelled tracer that has a similar structure to Pittsburgh B. And they imaged the tracer in 15 patients with Alzheimer's disease, 15 healthy controls and 5 patients who had frontotemporal dementia. And preclinical studies of this tracer showed that it binds to amyloid beta. And in the study in this issue, they showed that the tracer has a similar binding pattern in the brain to Pittsburgh B. So it shows widespread binding in the frontal cortex of patients with Alzheimer's disease. And in controls and in patients who have frontotemporal dementia, there was only binding in the white matter. And when the research examined the scans from all of the patients, in the majority of cases, they were able to distinguish patients with Alzheimer's disease from controls and also from patients who had frontotemporal dementia. So what are the implications of this study? It's still early days, isn't it, in terms of clinical relevance? That's right. It's a very preliminary study and more work is needed, obviously, on validating the tracer. But if future studies show that this tracer really is as good as Pittsburgh B, then it could be adopted into clinical practice quite quickly. And talking of Alzheimer's disease, this is also the topic in your leading edge this month. That's right. We have an editorial on electronic tracking of patients who have Alzheimer's disease. So the impetus for this editorial was the UK Alzheimer's Society's position statement supporting the use of electronic tracking technology to manage wandering behaviour in patients who have dementia. So about 40% of patients who have Alzheimer's disease get lost outside of their homes at some point during their illness. And the consequences of this wandering can be serious. Mortality is about one in five if patients are not found within 12 hours. And this rises to about 50% in people who are lost for more than 24 hours. You can see an interesting debate arising here, can't you? On the one hand, a sort of pragmatic, this could help prevent deaths from people who have Alzheimer's, as opposed to the, I suppose, the more libertarian argument, which is, well, this is another example of people being tagged and some are having their sort of freedom taken away. Exactly. And opponents of tagging say that people who have dementia, of course, have the same right as everybody else to go out and explore their surroundings and that they shouldn't be restricted in this way. But in reality, about 40% of patients are kept behind locked doors at some point during their illness. And also, a wandering episode can often lead to a person being placed into residential care. And so the use of these devices could enable patients to live in their homes for longer. 
And there's also the worry, though, that these devices could be used as a substitute for good quality care and that carers, as a result, might spend less time interacting with patients. And for patients with Alzheimer's disease, the main determinant of their quality of life is social interaction and personal contact with other people. And so if these devices are used in the place of spending good quality time with a patient, then it could have a detrimental effect on their quality of life. Yeah, I understand that, Helen, but there's an issue here to do with evidence, isn't there, or rather lack of evidence? That's right. There are no studies at all looking at whether these devices have an effect on quality of life or whether they can increase the time that a person can stay in their own home. And we believe that we should have the same standards and levels of evidence for evaluating these sorts of devices as we do for pharmaceutical interventions and that good quality studies are needed before gadgets of this type are adopted widely. Thanks, Helen. And finally, do you want to just run through the reviews you've got in this month's issue? We also have reviews on the neurobehavioural comorbidities of epilepsy, on the current and future uses of imaging in patients who are cognitively impaired, and also on the intense immunosuppression in patients with rapidly worsening MS. Great. Many thanks, Helen, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next month.